Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of CQP Moments. As always, I'm your host, the Coupon Queen, Ben. You know, we've all had that moment where we decide, hey, this is my life and I'm going to do what I need to do for me. Well, my next guest can definitely relate. So let's take a moment out and I'll be right back with Howard. So guys, like I was saying, I have Howard Scott with me. And you know how sometimes life doesn't go according to plan? Well, Howard knows a lot about that. So Howard, please introduce yourself to my listeners. Uh, Good morning. I'm Howard Scott. I was born and raised in Athens, Georgia, and uh, I do think I have an interesting life, but uh, a lot of it is reflected in the book Rascal on the Run, because even though it's fictional, we do write about what we know. And uh, I was fortunate to have had an interesting beginning of life in a college town in the deep south and had uh, very colorful parents and a really interesting background. So that's kind of the basis for my story. Okay, so you grew up in Georgia in a college town. So usually college towns aren't that big. So what, like, what made you say, was this something that you decided I want to be bigger than myself? I wanted to, you know, pay homage to where I live. What was the basis for really putting this out on print? Well, uh, it's an interesting story, but because it all started in, believe it or not, Sun Valley, Idaho at a dinner party with several Hollywood directors and producers where I started telling stories. And telling stories is part of Southern culture. And it's what people did before the internet. It's what people did before uh, the mass media. But um, during that time, we told stories and my story really begins with uh, being the seventh generation attorney coming up in a small college town with a grandfather who was the mayor and he was a football star of the University of Georgia Bulldog football team. And just having this background and in the South, we really have more of a diverse culture than you might think. Uh, we grew up playing with kids in the neighborhood and the neighborhood wasn't just a white neighborhood or just a black neighborhood. It was everybody growing up together and this life. And it was actually pretty cool. Uh, Living in a college town, uh, you generally find a more tolerant, uh, more centrist type of feel where it's not just conservative or not just liberal, it's really a mix of everything. And so it's it's a great uh, background or town to be brought up in. Yeah, because you get a mix of everybody. Everybody's coming to go to school. So you kind of meet people you wouldn't normally meet if you just didn't have 
a college in your town? Well, it was a major university. So you had university professors and in the parlance of the day, you call it town and gown. And the town people were people who generally were there for generations. And the, the gown people were the university related uh, faculty and staff. And they came from all over the United States and in some instances from around the world to come and teach and do research and other related activities. So it was a wonderful mix. I loved it and it really made a, a, a diverse uh, atmosphere for learning and growing up and being exposed to a lot of different things. Okay, there's something that you said that I want to touch on. You said you were a lawyer. So how do we go from lawyer to writer? Well, uh, it's really pretty easy, I guess. Uh, when you're the seventh generation attorney, you're somewhat expected to follow in the family tradition and continue that. So at a very early age, I started working in my father's law office. Uh, actually, I started when I was 13. And I was doing everything from just making copies to running errands, to going to the courthouse, to uh, sitting in on some of my father's jury trials and some of his uh, court appearances, just to kind of be exposed to everything. Um, being exposed to everything meant I was exposed to my father's clients, whether they be people charged with murder or they were seeking a divorce or had a contract dispute or any number of things. So you really got this on the job training or learning experience that most people wouldn't have an opportunity to get. Ooh, okay, okay, okay. So, but what made you say, okay, you know what? I've had enough of lawyer and law and everything. I'm going to write a book. Well, you know, like anything, uh, it comes through years of experience. And in law, I started out, like most people do, with lofty goals and aspirations. But you quickly find out uh, in law, much like you do in politics, that success is judged on a zero-sum format. And that is, if you win, you're successful. If you lose, you're not. And in practicing law, winning is everything. And in politics, winning is everything. So in the practice of law, you find yourself over the years skirting the areas of moral ambiguity in law because you want to win. And this happens all throughout the profession. It's not in everybody's practice and every aspect of it. But when you're a trial lawyer, that's how it works. And slowly you find yourself compromised and you wonder, well, what happened? What happened along the way? Why am I not enjoying this anymore? And I saw it through my father's practice. I saw it through a lot of other lawyers in Athens and I didn't wanna be that person. So when I got to a certain point and it wasn't fun anymore and I wasn't enjoying it and I honestly didn't feel good about the profession as a whole. And that came with the advent of lawyer advertising with literally too many lawyers being in existence so that you had people taking positions for clients 
that were really not in the client's best interest where you should have actually settled a case or resolved a dispute. There was litigation nonstop just for the sake of litigation to prove a point. Well, I got to that point and I knew I needed to make a change to be happy with myself and to do the right thing as it is said. And that's when I made the decision to leave the practice of law and to pivot and turn and do something different. Um, I had the opportunity to see what happens to people <clears throat> when they can't change or they're stuck on that hamster wheel or whether they're stuck into a certain profession because they can't afford to change, they're too afraid to change, or their financial circumstances don't allow them to the opportunity to change. But it takes opportunity and it takes courage to, to pivot and stop. And luckily I was able to retire from law at age 49 and start doing other things and really becoming fulfilled in life. And that really was borne out by my ability to start living a life on the sea, to experiencing different cultures and, and different aspects of life that most people just dream about, to be quite honest. And I've had the opportunity to actually live it. And along the way, I learned a lot of lessons and I heard a lot of stories. And I tried a lot of cases. I started out trying murder cases and misdemeanor cases and criminal wow. case types. And a couple of the murder cases are really the basis and backbone for rascal on the run. Um, another important aspect of it is to, to tell the story of the culture in which I was raised from the 60s to the 80s. And I did so through creating uh, a, a storyline where in the beginning of the book, I'm a 13-year-old boy watching my father try a, a very volatile murder case involving right. a, a black lady who's charged with murdering a white man. And this, in actuality, was a case that I tried. And it followed up fictionally in the book with 25 years later, me being a lawyer and trying the second murder case. And coincidentally, the murder cases were intertwined in the characters and in the plot line. And all of that was surrounded by stories, funny, some sad, some funny, some poignant uh, that reveal morality plays on the subjects of race, on the subjects of, of addiction and alcohol, and on the subjects of uh, how to live your life and have the courage to make a change. Right. Um, wow. So it, in, in many aspects is poignant, but in many aspects, it's really funny because it is a coming of age story of a young boy growing up in this town and coming of age. That is awesome. That is awesome. Now, there are a couple of things that you skipped over that you were just like, oh, yeah, that happened. First of all, I, I will say this. No one just like says, hey, you know what? I'm leaving and I'm going on the sea. <laughs> so what made that happen? What made you just say, you know what? I mean, because we can all make a change in our lives. 
but not everyone chooses to get on a yacht and go and go to the Caribbean, no less. <laughs> well, it really started before the actual yacht change. And, you know, we all learn lessons in life and we quite often we're formed by the examples of people that we are around and the examples uh, are taught by our parents quite often. And hopefully those examples are good examples where we model ourselves after a person who we admire and we take those good qualities and incorporate them in our own lives. But quite often, and, and really mo most of the time, their qualities or, def or defects in our parents that we want to avoid. And my, I grew up with an alcoholic father and uh, I witnessed things that I didn't like that I, and I saw things that were disturbing to me about the way his life progressed. And then he died at an early age at 58 of alcoholism. And those things really stuck with me. So I wanted to do things differently and I wanted to live a different life. And so that inspired me to take a course and, and implement a plan to change the way I live. Part of it was not trying to keep up with the Joneses, not trying to live a larger life than what I could afford. And oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Can you repeat that for the people in the back? I, I, I'm, I'm loving this right now. Did, did you say well, not keeping up with the Joneses? Exactly. I mean, most lawyers are more concerned about their image than they are about their future. And they think that they have to portray a certain image and not just lawyers, but doctors and many, many other people in professions or simply living a middle-class life. So I didn't pursue the life of driving big fancy cars or living in gigantic mansion or being a member of the country club or all those things. I took that so money. So wait, you're not driving a Tesla and have a 10 bedroom house with five bathrooms? No, no, no. Is that no, what no. you're telling me? Well, growing up, I did, and I took that money and invested it in real estate. I bought rental property and uh, did other things because it ended up that when I became dissatisfied with the practice of law, then I had the ability to actually get out of it because I had something else behind me. Uh, some people inherit, I didn't, but I had these investments to fall back on and then slowly but surely I realized well I have this rental property and I live in a college town so why don't I just create college housing so that's what I started doing I got out nice. of that and one thing led to another uh, a fourplex turned into an eightplex which turned into 50 uh, apartments to which turned into 300 apartments, which multiplied just by coming up with a successful formula. Nice. So I guess the bottom line was if you plan ahead and you think clearly, you can implement a plan like this. The other aspect was that I saw my father being diminished by alcohol. So when that happened, it was, of course, painful to me to see him go down from being this superstar lawyer to being a shell of himself due to alcohol. So I decided to make a change and to stop drinking. And when I did, I was had a clear enough mind 
that I could do make these decisions that I could make good decisions with my life. So later, when I did get out of law, and I did get into creating student housing, I was able to then think about what is money really meant for? And what I can money, it's not meant to accumulate and pile up and let everybody look at you and say, God, he's rich. How did he do that? But money is really meant to buy freedom, the freedom to do what you want, to go where you want, to experience life in the manner that you want to live it. And for me, that turned into life on the sea and living a life of adventure, the ability to have the time to write a book, the ability to have time to meet interesting people and to absorb different cultures. And to me, that was really the secret to it all. Okay, okay. So, because you keep talking about your dad being an alcoholic, and I know you talk about being a, like, talk about functional alcoholism. What is, because I think a lot of people don't realize that they're alcoholics because they can function. Right. And, you know, when we think of alcoholism or we think about drug abuse, we think about that person on the street that's kind of lost everything because they couldn't function. We're not thinking about the people that are holding a job, having a business and still having, oh, so many drinks or having a drink to get through the day. Well, that's so true. I mean, up until the two years before my father died, he was highly functioning. He was trying major jury jury trials and functioning at a high level. But at some point, uh, and this was in his life about two years before he died, he went downhill like a rock and to being uh, dead within two years. And I started looking at myself when all this was going on. And I said, you know, I need to understand about the nature of alcoholism. So I went to uh, an Al-Anon meeting and I started listening to the people talking in the room. And I thought, you know, they all come from alcoholic families. They all, it didn't just happen overnight. It was slow and gradual. And I don't want this to happen to me. And I thought, well, am I an alcoholic? And probably by somebody's definition, I probably was, but I really wasn't sure. But all I knew is that I didn't want to become one. And so why not be preemptive? Why not stop now while you can or while you're able? Because at some point it can become like in my father's case, something that you have no control over, that it will just eat you alive. And that's exactly what it did to him. Wow. Wow. So I have a question because one of the biggest things during this whole pandemic was comfort drinking, or as you call it, the COVID cocktails, you know, because <laughs> it was like we couldn't eat together, but everybody could share a cocktail, you know, over Zoom or even you know, I didn't find out till later that people were having Zoom happy hours. Right, so right. It's like now, how do people maneuver 
from the sitting home and drinking to the, hey, you know what? Maybe I need to slow down a little bit, you know, and, and, you know, everyone wants to get into the out, but, you know, drinks are still prevalent everywhere. There are bars, there are bar and grills. You can, you know, catch a cocktail, catch a mimosa brunch. There are things that, you know, and a lot of things do include alcohol. So how do, are we, how, how do you say we can be now more mindful of our alcohol consumption? Well, you know, I don't mean to indict anyone who drinks as being uh, having a problem, but and I don't want to be preachy in that aspect because many, many, many people can have drinks and it's no problem. And correct, they, correct, or maybe three, but not not every day. And so, but because it's such an insidious kind of disease sometimes it is a slow creep into that and you really have to be mindful as you say of how many am I truthfully drinking per night and how many nights per week am I drinking whether I'm someone who could fall into that trap and you know we all have problems we all have things that maybe want to take a drink or take a puff of something just to ease the situation and to temporarily feel good but really feeling good is is and is being a whole person and looking at yourself and being introspective enough to figure out who you are and where you are in relation to all these topics but this is nothing new it was in existence long before covid Uh, the cocktail generation is what i refer to in the book rascal on the run but in that, uh, in, that mm-hmm. in college, it was a constant party. Uh, you had parties at people's houses back then. People didn't have all the entertainment. The focus was have a drink, have a drink. Uh, come to a keg party, come to a cocktail party. We're having drinks. Uh, and, you know, alcohol and social, socializing have always been uh, go, something that went hand in hand. But in many cases, it got out of hand and it led to disaster and and ruined lives. And we see it now in many forms. Back in the day, it was mainly just alcohol. Now it's everything under the sun and uh, many in media portrayals kind of glorify it or skip over it. Like when you have a reality show that's called rehab, you know, they make it look as if it's just... uh, a normal process to go through rehab and then everything's fine. Well, most of the time, everything isn't fine. So true. So true. So thank you for that. Now let's get back to Rascal on a Run because you mentioned quite a few things, including the Dixie Mafia. Yeah, that's a real thing. And it was in existence, uh, during my childhood and up into the 80s, you know, in some cultures and cities, you have the mafia controlling labor unions or contracts and offering protection in neighborhoods for businesses. But in the South, you had a criminal element that uh, they were into stealing cars and having chop shops where the cars were torn up and transmissions and motors taken out and then resold at junkyards and other places 
And that was a real thing. And the Dixie Mafia controlled uh, alcohol distribution in places where alcohol was not legal. And uh, it ran these chop shops and it, didn't, it was involved in many other kind of uh, endeavors. And most of the people in the Dixie Mafia came from uh, the lower echelon of society, people who were um, not only uh, marginal from a literacy and educational standpoint, but also the kind of people who might be uh, engaged in, in the Klan or in other popular uh, aspects of, of Southern history. And right, right. so that's how that got to be in the book. It was a real thing and it was a real problem in the South and it was a problem in a lot of places, but uh, that was my experience. And so, so that's why I wrote about it in the book. Wow. Wow. I mean, you talk about being a lawyer, living in a college town, Dixie Mafia, you know, learning from your dad firsthand, learning from your grandfather firsthand. Wow. Awesome. Well, and you and the, and I think the thing that gets me is with all of this, you said I have to live my own life. Well, yes. And the the beauty of having the experiences I had is that I was exposed to real people dealing with real problems in the from the 60s on through the 80s and 90s. And those real people came in all colors, white, black, rich, poor, all aspects. So I got to, I didn't grow up in a bubble. Uh, I got to see people who were dealing with real life problems. And on the, on the good side, I saw my dad <clears throat> who represented a lot of people of low means, a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of people of color, a lot of people who <clears throat> needed someone who was honest, someone who would look out for their personal issues, business and otherwise, and uh, had deep empathy. And my dad had all that, even though he was a deeply flawed individual, as I mentioned, as, as being an alcohol, he, alcoholic, he also had wonderful qualities. <clears throat> In the South back then, uh, the story that's not told are the people who helped other people that even in in view of a global picture of the south and that would include the horrible things involving right uh, right jim crow laws and some of the blatant racism and the violence that occurred towards people of color there was also another side and when i was a kid the movie came out to kill a mockingbird right and in that we were all deeply moved by the story that was being told. But was it, what wasn't told and what didn't come out till many, many years later is that the original transcript of To Kill a Mockingbird was vastly changed by the editors when presented to the publishing company in New York. And the real story was more about what was going on with this uh, rape case in Alabama back in the 
1930s, and that was that in reality, the defendant was found not guilty. And that Atticus Finch <clears throat> convinced the jury to look past their prejudices. Most of the time it didn't occur, but some of the times it did, and some of these good stories coming out of the South were never really told because they don't sell. And I got to oh. witness from a father who really did a lot of wonderful things for the community, a lot of wonderful things for people of lower means and uh, that were uh, compromised by not being able to read and write or having other uh, barriers to them succeeding in life. And he helped those folks and I loved it. I got to see it firsthand. And part of that story is told in Rascal on the Run, but the book most definitely acknowledges all of the bad things that were going on in Southern culture at that time. Nice, nice. So Howard, tell everyone where they can find your amazing book. Well, it's uh, available on all platforms. I think most people probably go to uh, Amazon or Barnes and Noble, but uh, you can go on howardtscott.com. That's howardtscott.com. And there's a uh, icon to click on if you wish to purchase it. But some people like audiobooks, and I found a, a great, great voice to do the audiobook version, and that's also available. And uh, I hope you'll give it a read because it's not just poignant, it's very funny. There are really hilarious laugh out loud moments all throughout the, the book. And there is a little bit of a love interest in the book as well. So there's uh, that to follow to keep it from delving into being too deep and too melancholy. Nice. So you're giving us comedy, romance, and drama. Absolutely. And the, the fun part of it is, even though it's fiction, we classify it as historic fiction, and it really is based on life experiences and two murder cases that I actually tried myself. That is so awesome. So guys, definitely check out Rascal on the Run and go it go to howardtscott.com. I just love that name. <laughs> and please get the copy of your copy of the book. But well, Howard, you, go ahead. Well, all the ladies in your audience, please note that the, the character of my mother, which is Theodora Marble Smith, is a character that you'll love. And many uh, women have expressed uh, how much they love that character. She was a woman well, well uh, beyond her time and her life and her sass and her intellect and her humor uh, are prominently featured in the book. That is awesome. That is awesome. So Howard, it has been amazing having you. Thank you. So guys, I hope that you enjoyed that as much as I did. Oh my goodness. Thank you again, Howard Scott. And guys, make sure you get your copy of Rascal on the Run so you can laugh, cry, and have that romantic moment. But as always, guys, be good to yourselves, be good to each other, and happy shopping. 
Hey everyone, it's Angelica from A Little Bit of Everything With Me podcast, and you're listening to CQP Moments with the Coupon Queen Pen. Don't forget to like and subscribe and rate her podcast.